Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. You can trust Indeed as a hiring partner because they want the same thing that you do to help you find quality candidates. So start right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through March 31st. The podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. For those people who hate their phone bill and are ready to cut the ties with big wireless, you can now cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month and get a plan shipped right to your front door for free at mintmobile.com gold. The rally in U.S. stocks continued on this Wednesday. In fact, the Dow closed up just over 300 points today. That's almost a 1% gain, but the rise was even larger in the NASDAQ. That index moving up just over 2% and an even bigger rise in the more speculative names in the NASDAQ. The Kathy Wood Arc Innovation ETF, that was up over 5% today. We're getting a rally in those momentum names. They were down quite a bit, although not nearly as much as they're ultimately going to be down. But the drop has already been large enough for some people to make the mistake of thinking they're getting a bargain because they're comparing the recent price 
to the record high. And because there's a big discount there, they think they're getting these stocks on sale. They think they're getting a bargain. They're still overpaying. They're just overpaying by a lower amount than investors were overpaying in the past. I think they're going to learn that lesson the hard way. Of course, some of the other buying may well come from short covering. So they're not buying the stocks because they think they're a bargain. They're just buying them to book a profit. They don't want to be pigs. They've seen a big drop in the value of the stock they shorted, and they just want to square up the books, take a profit. Maybe they'll step back and reassess the situation. If we get a bigger dead cat bounce in these names, they may reestablish the short position that they covered in order to get back into a winning trade and average the cost higher so that they're then short these names from a higher price point leading to a better risk reward situation for the overall position but as the stock market has been rallying so too has the price of gold in fact gold continues to inch higher pretty much in obscurity really operating underneath everybody's radar nobody is really talking about the increase in the price of gold we did trade above 1835 earlier today we settled a little bit off those highs as i'm recording the podcast it looks like gold closed at 1833.50 up about another seven dollars on the day but despite that strength gold stocks actually finished down on the day. In fact, if you look at where gold is trading right now, it only needs to rise about 2%, a little less actually, to get back to the high price it traded at in November of last year before the recent correction. But gold stocks went down so much during that correction and they barely rallied back that gold stocks would have to increase by more than 10% to get back to where they were when gold was less than 2% higher than it is right now. And I think one reason that investors are not paying attention to the bull market in gold is because they've been distracted by the bear market rally in Bitcoin. As I'm recording this podcast, the price of Bitcoin is getting close to $45,000 per coin again. We're about 44700 We got as low as 33000 what, a week or two ago. So that's like a 35% move off the lows in a very short period of time. And so a lot of people are talking about that move and paying attention to that move and really ignoring what's going on in the gold market. You know, despite the fact that Bitcoin is actually down on a year-over-year basis, even though we just had that spectacular rally. And that's because we also had a huge rally back in February of last year. So if you compare the price of Bitcoin today to where it was trading at a year ago in February, even though we've had this huge rally off the lows, on a year-over-year basis, Bitcoin is still down. And again, that year-over-year decline comes against the backdrop of a massive advertising campaign, the likes of which I've never seen, where you have constant advertising nonstop on all the financial networks. You have massive pumping going on. You have all of the on-air anchors bullish and touting Bitcoin. You have all of the guests promoting Bitcoin. You have all of these 
celebrities and other high-profile individuals, whether it's from Hollywood or sports, jumping on the bandwagon. You've got politicians claiming they're going to get paid in Bitcoin. You've got a country like El Salvador. Oh, we're going to make Bitcoin legal tender. You've got this unprecedented pump, yet the price of Bitcoin is down. I think that pump is going to reach its high point on Super Bowl Sunday. And in fact, I have a feeling that the rally we're seeing in Bitcoin right now has to do with the anticipation of the advertising blitz on Super Bowl Sunday. And it really reminds me of the 2000 Super Bowl, where for the first time you had all these dot-com companies like Pets.com with the sock puppet advertising on the Super Bowl. And a lot of times, by the time these companies can finally get around to affording Super Bowl ads, that's the peak of the market. And that may be what's happening again. History is repeating itself 22 years later, where you have all of these crypto-type companies like Coinbase having enough money to afford to pay a record high price for a 30-second or 60-second spot on the Super Bowl. And I think what's happening is a lot of the Bitcoin traders are anticipating all of this hype and that a lot of people who are going to be watching the Super Bowl and are going to be seeing these ads, that they're going to react to these ads by buying Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. After all, that is the purpose of the ads, to convince people to buy Bitcoin or Ether or some other coin. And so a lot of the insiders are trying to position themselves to be able to sell into all that buying. And obviously, they want to get the price as high as possible when the buying starts so that they can get as much as possible for their own coins that they're selling. And of course, they also want that positive momentum going into the Super Bowl ads because that will help sell the audience on buying crypto if everybody is excited about the recent gain instead of worried about the collapse you got to turn the market sentiment back to bullish so you can sucker in more buyers and so to me this looks like the classic bitcoin pump and dump kind of like when elon musk was going to go on saturday night live you know there's a lot of buying in anticipation of his hosting saturday night live and pretty much as soon as elon musk grabbed the mic they started dumping Bitcoin. And the same thing might happen with the Super Bowl. So it'll be interesting to see, A, if the pump can go on all the way to the Super Bowl, because some people may try to jump the gun, right, and get a head start on the selling and try to beat the crowd. So the sell-off might actually start before the Super Bowl, but it will be very interesting to see if they can maintain it all the way through the Super Bowl. And if somewhere during the game, when those ads start to hit, we start to see the price sell off. I mean, obviously, the pumpers would like to see the price continue to rise during the game because they're hoping all that advertisement draws in enough buyers so that the price can actually go up as they're selling. But at some point, whether it's during the game or shortly thereafter, I expect to see this bear market rally fail and to see another collapse in the price of Bitcoin down the new lows. In the meantime, though, this is providing a smokescreen 
and nobody is really noticing what's going on in gold because they're too focused on the rally in Bitcoin. And I think that's great from the perspective of a gold bull market. You want a stealth bull market. You don't want investors to notice what's going on. You want the rally to happen underneath everybody's radar because that allows more people who do know what's going on to buy. And I think the longer it takes for Main Street to notice what's going on in gold and maybe gold stocks, the more sustainable the rally is going to be and the higher the price is ultimately going to rise before we have the next correction. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hundreds on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring journey, allowing you to find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates with the resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for those qualified applicants that meet your must-have requirements. In fact, the thing that I love most about Indeed is it lets you consolidate all of your hiring onto one platform. And with Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post, according to Indeed data. And candidates that you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to actually apply to your job than candidates who only see it through search. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through March 31st. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. And of course, even though the media is not necessarily focusing any airtime on what's going on in gold, people are buying. I was reading this article in the Wall Street Journal, and the article had to do with our trade deficit, but it pointed out that the biggest increase on a country-by-country basis over the last couple of years has been the increase from Switzerland. American imports from Switzerland are up about 60% over the past couple of years. And it's not because Americans are eating a lot more Swiss chocolate. I mean, what's really going on here is we're importing a lot more gold from Switzerland, a huge increase in gold imports. And I have a feeling that that's not about making jewelry, although some of it is going to be in jewelry, but I don't know that we've seen a big increase in demand for jewelry or other industrial products that require gold. In fact, a lot of those products are manufactured outside the United States, so we don't import the actual gold. We just import the products that contain the gold. I think that most of that import is bullion. In other words, it's investor demand for gold in the United States that is driving up the imports of gold from Switzerland. So clearly, the media may not be paying attention to what's going on, but clearly some Americans are, which is why the demand for gold has been moving up. And obviously, if the demand is moving up, 
price is going to follow. In fact, while I'm talking about that article, I got to point out the absurdity of the article itself because the headline of that Wall Street Journal article is that the 27% surge in America's trade deficit shows how strong the U.S. economy is. Think about that. Our trade deficit skyrockets by 27%. And the Wall Street Journal, supposedly this is the epitome when it comes to economic reporting in the United States. The venerable Wall Street Journal, everybody's Bible when it comes to finance and economics, they think that a 27% growth in your trade deficit represents economic strength. I mean, that's like, you know, your kid brings home an F on his report card, and you're like, oh, that must stand for fabulous. It doesn't. It is failure. 27% explosion in a deficit is an abysmal failure of an economy. I mean, imagine if our trade surplus had grown by 27%, right? We had an explosion of exports, and our surplus went way up. Would the Wall Street Journal really write a headline about how our soaring trade surplus shows how weak our economy is? Of course not. I mean, they would be writing a positive story about that. They would be saying that this huge increase in our trade surplus is evidence of a booming U.S. economy, and they would be correct, but you can't have it both ways. Either an increase in your trade surplus is good or an increase in your trade deficit is good. They can't both be good, and clearly a bigger surplus is a good thing, right? If you get a bigger profit, right, a company that operates at a profit is like a country that operates at a trade surplus. So a profit equals a surplus. A deficit is like a loss. So when a company is operating at a loss, that's a bad thing. When a country is operating at a deficit, that's also a bad thing. And in fact, if you look at the other countries that have trade surpluses, those are strong economies. That's why they're able to generate these surpluses. They produce so much stuff that they have a surplus. They have extra stuff that they can export. And again, when you have a surplus, you have earnings from your exports. And then you can take those earnings and you can invest them. And you get richer because you've earned assets in exchange for your exports. That's how creditor nations become richer because they invest their earnings from trade. On the other hand, when you are running a trade deficit, you are accumulating liabilities in order to pay for those deficits. So debtor nations go deeper into debt as a result of running trade deficits. That's why the U.S. has gone from the world's biggest creditor nation to the world's biggest debtor because we used to run surpluses and now we run deficits. So is the Wall Street Journal of the opinion that the more debt a nation has, the stronger its economy? And these other economies that are big creditor nations that have all these assets, they have weak economies and that's why they're so rich. America is so broke because our economy is so strong. Clearly, that's not the case. So the Wall Street Journal is completely clueless when they are reporting about the U.S. economy. I mean, either they're clueless or they're deliberately lying because they don't want to tell their readers the truth about the U.S. economy. So this is all spin. They're trying to take the facts and spin them around and make lemonade out of economic lemons.
In fact, while I'm talking about the lemons that define the U.S. economy, I was watching an interview this morning on CNBC with Atlanta Fed President Bostic, and he was being interviewed by Steve Leisman and Becky Quick. And Leisman asked him a good question. Of course, he didn't have a follow-up, and he didn't hold Bostic accountable for his answer. But Steve pointed out correctly, and something that I've been saying on this podcast for a while, he said that the Fed is planning on raising interest rates up to about 1% or so by the end of the year. And he said, but you know, the Fed would have done that anyway. I mean, even if there was no inflation to fight, clearly the Fed would have raised interest rates up to 1%. So how is this going to work as far as inflation fighting? And how has the Fed in any way adjusted the policy that it would have followed anyway in light of the fact that inflation is much higher than it originally thought, which is the point I've been making. The Fed is doing nothing differently now that they've admitted that inflation is not transitory than what they were doing when they were still claiming that it was transitory. I mean, the only thing that they may be doing is starting the rate hikes a little bit sooner. So we're lifting off in 2022 instead of 2023, but the trajectory of liftoff is identical to what it might have been had inflation remained under 2%. So Bostick's answer to that question was A, to acknowledge, hey, you're right. You know, we're not really doing anything differently. It's just business as usual. It's just normal policy. But what his position was, was that, by communicating to the markets that the Fed intended to move back to a historically normal stance on monetary policy, that this signal, this communication of a return to normalcy would be enough to bring inflation down. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Well, why should it? If the Fed pursued a certain policy when there was no inflation, right? When inflation officially was under 2%, how can we now return to that same policy when inflation is over 7%? And by the way, we're going to get the official CPI numbers tomorrow 
And the year-over-year increase is going to be higher than 7%, most likely, maybe 7.2, maybe 7.3. So it's moving in the other direction. But if we've got this abnormally high inflation rate, how is a return to normal monetary policy going to do anything about that inflation problem? After all, the way the Fed has been able to justify this historically normal stance. And again, history doesn't go back very far, just the Greenspan era, just during this gigantic bubble. But during this entire time period, the justification, and in fact, really the pretense for this easy money policy has been the absence of inflation. The Fed has been able to hide behind the fact that inflation was below this 2% target and that's why they could justify keeping interest rates so low because inflation was still too low and that we were trying to get the inflation rate higher And one of the ways we were trying to raise the level of inflation in the economy was by keeping interest rates lower than they would normally be if we had an adequate level of inflation. Again, I explained why this whole thing was BS, that inflation wasn't too low. There was no reason to try to move it higher. But pushing all that aside, when inflation is 7%, What is the justification for going back down to the same type of monetary policy that was supposedly appropriate when inflation was less than 2% and your goal was to make inflation higher? If your goal is now to make inflation lower, and of course it has to be much lower. Back then they were talking about a marginal increase. Hey, let's make inflation go from 1.5 to 2. And we had this real loose monetary policy. Well, now we have to make inflation go from 6 seven all the way down to two and we're going to do that by returning to the same loose monetary policy in fact later on in this same short interview Bostic actually qualified what he meant by historically normal stance he said that the fed was going to be moving to a less accommodative stance less accommodative not restrictive less accommodative and that's what i've been saying we're not talking about tight money We're talking about less loose. And that's exactly what Bostic confirmed. The Fed is going to go to a less accommodative policy than the accommodative policy it has right now. Well, how do you fight inflation with an accommodative policy? I mean, find the economic textbook, even a Keynesian textbook that says you can fight inflation with an accommodative economic policy because less accommodative is still accommodative. You need a restrictive policy to fight inflation. And the Fed is not even pretending that it's going to go to a restrictive policy. It is admitting that policy is going to remain accommodative the entire time, but somehow inflation is going to go away on its own. Why would that possibly happen? It won't. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2022, why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for your wireless service? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. And Mint Mobile is the first company to sell wireless service online only. Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting as low as just 15 bucks a month. In fact, if you're looking to get wireless service for your kids, I can't think of a more economic way to do it than with Mint Mobile. And by going online only, you're eliminating all the traditional costs of retail. Mint Mobile passes on those significant savings 
to you. And all their plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and you can keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And with Mint Mobile, you can choose among monthly data plans that are right for you and you can stop paying for expensive data plans you never use. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service that starts at just $15 a month. So to get your $15 a month plan and to get it shipped right to your front door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com slash gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gold. In fact, there were some other interesting admissions that Bostic made during this short interview. And I'm really surprised that you didn't get an even bigger reaction in the gold market or in the currency market to what Bostic was actually admitting. One of the questions he was asked was that if he thought the Fed was going to deliver any 50 basis point rate hikes, because there are a lot of people who have been saying that some of these hikes may be 50 basis points and maybe even lift off the hike that we're going to get in March. The Fed may start off with a bang and 50 basis points right out of the gate. And he basically threw cold water on that by saying at this point in time, he doesn't see any reason to hike by 50 basis points. And when he's talking about the rate hikes that he expects this year, if he thinks we're going to have three rate hikes or maybe four, all of those rate hikes that he is anticipating as the Atlanta Fed president are 25 basis point hikes. Now, he did leave open the possibility of a 50 basis point rate hike if the data changes to the point where such a hike would be appropriate. But as of now, according to Bostic, nothing in the data would suggest that a 50 basis point hike would be appropriate, which of course is ridiculous because an even bigger hike than 50 basis points is already appropriate given the data that we have. So what that really means is it doesn't matter what kind of data we get because if the data isn't already strong enough on inflation to merit a 50 basis point hike from zero, well, nothing is going to happen to change that. And so that's the biggest hike the Fed is willing to administer is 25 basis points. And again, I think that's because they realize that the markets might not hold up to a bigger hike. So I think based on that admission, the markets should start factoring out the possibility that we do get 50 basis point hikes because I think that possibility has been factored in because it's been talked about so much. But another admission that I think should have also moved the markets but didn't, and again, it's probably because most people don't even pick up on the nuances of these statements, but Becky Quick asked a good question. Again, no follow-up, just kind of lets him get away with it. But Becky asked him, why is the Fed even still doing QE? What is the purpose? Why don't you just stop, right? Why are you still doing it? And his answer was actually more telling in what he didn't say than what he did say. Because what he didn't say was that it was appropriate for the economy. In fact, he didn't mention the economy once in his answer. What he said 
was that the Fed was looking to create certainty in the markets, right? Meaning the stock market, the financial markets. So the reason the Fed is still doing QE has to do with the markets and not the economy. Of course, that's the reason the Fed started QE. It's always been about the markets. It's never been about the economy, only to the extent that the Fed thinks that the markets are the horse that pulls the economic cart. And so that's the Fed's version of trickle down, right? If we help the markets, then the markets will help the economy because his only answer had to do with the markets. And then what he said was, after we create this certainty in the markets, at that point, we'll be able to remove the liquidity. Now, I think what that means is that the Fed is trying to prepare the markets for the withdrawal of liquidity before the liquidity is actually withdrawn because they wanna make sure the markets can deal with it, that the markets price that in before they actually do it, right? They don't wanna pull the rug out from under the markets until they're convinced the markets can stand even though they pull out the rug. Well, that's not gonna happen because at some point, the markets are gonna buckle if the Fed continues to drain that liquidity if the Fed continues to hike interest rates. And based on this answer, at some point, if the markets can no longer handle the withdrawal of liquidity, if that certainty becomes uncertain because the markets are tanking, what the Fed is saying, what Boskin is admitting, is that the Fed will come back with more QE, that they're only willing to stop QE so long as they think the markets could live without it. But once they realize that they can't, well, they're going to come back, which again is inevitable because once you get somebody high on drugs, and in fact, you get a drug addict who is completely dependent on this addiction, you can't take away the drugs and expect him to be fine. No, eventually you're going to go through a withdrawal and If you just get more drugs every time you go through withdrawal, well, you're never going to get off the habit. And that is exactly what the Fed has been doing. The Fed tries to take away the drugs, but then the minute the market has an adverse reaction, well, they're back there with more drugs because they don't have the stomach for actual withdrawal. They're not going to let that happen. But nobody seemed to pick up on this aspect of this interview. But I think it was all very telling. Obviously, he didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. But it should have been a bit of a wake-up call for some of the mainstream economists that still haven't figured this out yet. And it should have caused a bigger move up in gold. It should have caused a bigger move down in the U.S. dollar. A point I want to make, though, regarding this is that the Fed clearly believes that the stock market is important to the real economy. And that's really why it wants to keep the stock market propped up. It's not that it just wants to make sure that the rich get richer. It wants to make sure that there's no collateral damage among the middle class or the poor in that people end up losing their jobs because the rich lose some of their money. And so again, it's more of this trickle down monetary policy. But here is the problem. And I've talked about this on other podcasts. A lot of these companies that employ a lot of people, these are money losing companies. And the only reason that they can afford to pay their workers is because of the bubble in the stock market. Because they can sell stock to investors, they're able to pay their workers. They're able to buy the capital that they need. They're able to rent the office space or whatever they need to run these non-profitable businesses 
they're able to get the capital, they're able to get the labor, they're able to get the land to run these businesses because investors are supplying the money. They're not earning the money from their customers because they're providing customers with goods and services that exceed the value of what the customers are paying. No, they're actually destroying value. They're delivering products to customers and it costs them more to deliver those products or services than the customers are willing to pay. And the investors are making up the difference because they think they're gonna get rich selling dollars for 90 cents as long as they make up the loss on volume, right? That's the mentality of this bubble. But what's really going on is a massive misallocation of resources this is your classic malinvestment that occurs as a result of this Fed monetary policy. Land, labor, and capital is being misallocated from businesses that should get it to businesses that shouldn't. And you can see the result of that malinvestment and misallocation in the trade deficits. Why are we importing so much stuff? Why aren't we making this stuff ourselves? Well, because the companies that might otherwise make that stuff, they don't have the resources to do it because the land, labor, and capital that would be required to produce that stuff is being misallocated to all these money-losing businesses that are coming up with cockamamie ideas and wasting these resources, creating stuff that we really don't need, but that's making investors rich. And so now we have to import all this stuff that we're not producing because we're wasting our resources in these money-losing businesses. But the only reason these businesses are able to stay in business and keep losing money is because of Fed monetary policy. Now, as the Fed starts to remove that policy and now the stock market crashes and these businesses can no longer subsidize their losses by selling stock to investors because investors don't want to buy the stock anymore because the stock is going down, not up. Well, then all these people are going to lose their jobs. And that's when the Fed comes in. The Fed starts to see the malinvestments being liquidated by the market, which is a healthy thing. We want to stop squandering our resources. We need to start reallocating them to a higher and better use. We need to start producing some of the stuff that we're consuming so we can reduce our trade deficits. But all that is going to take place within a recession because a recession is part of that process. People have to lose the wrong jobs before they can get the right jobs. So there is going to be some friction in the unemployment rate. And of course, a lot of workers need to be retrained. They may not know how to do the jobs we need to be done because they spent so much time doing jobs that shouldn't have been done because of the Fed. So the Fed is getting in the way of this process because it's going to see this unemployment, these companies going bankrupt, not as a good thing, which it is, but as a bad thing. And now they're going to try to stop that bad thing from happening by going back to the same policies that made this bad thing necessary. The recession is a necessary and positive consequence to the malinvestments that were built up during the boom that was caused by the Fed's bad policy. The problem is once the market exposes all those mistakes and tries to correct them, the Fed makes even more mistakes to cover that up and try to reflate the bubbles that have been deflating. And so that's obviously what's gonna happen. 
Bostic admitted that. As soon as the markets start to buckle because the markets can't handle the less accommodative monetary policy that is going to be in place, then the Fed is going to go back to a greater degree of accommodation in order to prop up the markets to save the economy because it believes that the reallocation of labor and capital back to productive uses is a bad thing because in the short run, it has adverse collateral damage. But of course, that adverse damage is healthy. It is the necessary pain that we need to make real economic gain. When the Fed tries to prevent us from feeling that pain, we end up feeling even more pain. Again, it's like you have an athlete who maybe injures himself playing football. Maybe he sprains his ankle and the coach, instead of having him sit out the rest of the game, shoots him up with some type of narcotic so that he can't feel the pain in his ankle. And so he'll keep on playing because he's numb to the pain. But in the meantime, by doing that, he exacerbates the injury. And now maybe instead of being out for the game, he ends up being out for the whole season because the coach didn't do the right thing and let him heal. He wanted him in the game because he wanted to win that game. He wasn't thinking about the entire season. Well, that's how the Fed thinks. The Fed is all short-term focused. What can we do to artificially strengthen the economy right now? We don't care if what we're doing makes the economy worse in the long run because in the long run, it's somebody else's problem. In the short run, it's our problem. And in fact, it's the problem of the politicians that we're trying to help reelect. And in fact, making it worse, a lot of these economists at the Fed don't even realize that they're doing the wrong thing because they don't actually know anything about economics, which is why they get appointed to these jobs in the first place. Also, speaking about the Fed and the economy, I was watching the latest episode of USA Watchdog. That's Greg Hunter's program. He used to be up on YouTube before he was deplatformed, and now you can find his podcasts on Rumble. But he was interviewing John Williams of Shadow Stats. And if you're not familiar with John Williams, he's the guy that runs the Shadow Stats website, and he calculates the CPI using the old methodology that they used to use back in the 1970s and 1980s. And when you measure the current inflation rate using the older versions of the CPI, that's when you get these much higher numbers. In fact, I think that the way Williams calculated the CPI last year using the old methodology, we ended up with about 15% increase in the CPI, not 7%. So it wasn't just the worst inflation in 40 years. It was really the worst inflation ever. So if you haven't seen that interview, you should check it out. But I wanted to talk about it because there were some very interesting points that were made during that discussion that I want to follow up on. I mean, first of all, one of the points that Williams made made, and I think I may have made it myself in the past, but I may as well reiterate it again, is that the original impetus for the change in the CPI was not really that the CPI was wrong and that it was overstating inflation. The main goal was to reduce 
government spending. Because back in the early 80s, there was a big push to try to reduce the deficit. And so the government was looking for ways to reduce government spending. Of course, nobody wanted to vote to cut government spending. So one way to cut Social Security, which of course nobody would want to touch being the third rail of American politics, was to find a way to reduce the annual cost of living adjustments. Because every year they have these COLAs and they have to increase Social Security payments by the amount of inflation. Now, they didn't want to cut the colas by saying we're not going to raise your benefits by the inflation rate we're going to raise it by 70 percent of the inflation rate or something like that because then they would have voted to reduce benefits and people getting social security would have reacted to that at the polls what they decided to do was change the cpi so that the cpi had a lower number so that the colas would go up by a smaller amount and that would reduce the expenditures to Social Security. So it was a way to cut Social Security benefits without anybody having to go on a record and actually cut them. So that was the stealth purpose of fixing the CPI. And by fixing, I mean fixing it the way the mob would fix a sporting event. They fixed it in a bad way, not in a good way. And they did it to deceive the American people. But then once they did that, it had all sorts of ancillary benefits that they probably never even envisioned, like artificially making the economy look stronger than it really was, or giving the Fed this cover to pursue this reckless monetary policy, because by pretending that inflation was too low, they could actually run inflationary monetary policies under the guise that we need these policies to correct this problem of too low inflation. So they killed a lot of birds with a single stone when they rigged the CPI to understate the true rate of inflation. And probably one of the biggest factors that resulted in an artificially low number wasn't just the hedonics or the substitution, but simply using owner's equivalent rent instead of home prices or real rent. Instead of using prices that people actually pay to buy their homes or rent people actually pay to rent their homes, they used a number that nobody actually paid, a number that's completely made up where you're asking a homeowner if he had to rent his house from himself, how much would he charge himself? An asinine question has nothing to do with the true cost of living, yet that's the single biggest component of the CPI. So I thought it was interesting that John brought that up. And so I wanted to reiterate that in case a lot of people are just starting to listen to my podcast and they don't realize the origin of that switch. But what was more significant to me, because it was something I hadn't really thought about, but it was very interesting, is that John was talking about the impact of all the people who are now not working due to COVID. Because you would think with this big spike in the Omicron variant and a lot of people not going to work because of COVID, why haven't we seen a bigger increase in the unemployment rate? After all, if these people are not at work because of COVID, right, you would expect them to be unemployed. And while in reality, they are unemployed because they're not working, they're not technically unemployed. Because if somebody is not working due to COVID, they're not officially unemployed. Because in order to be unemployed, you have to be willing and able to work. You have to be not working, 
but also out looking for a job. Now, if you're sick because you've got COVID, well, you're not looking for a job. You can't work. You're in isolation. You're quarantined because you have COVID. So the fact of the matter is all of these people who are now not working due to COVID are not driving up the unemployment statistics. So that's why we're not seeing it because they're not being counted. And also the people who are not working because of COVID, they're not getting fired. They haven't been laid off. I mean, technically they still have jobs, even though they're not showing up and doing any work because they're just on leave. They're just on an extended break from their job while they're waiting to recover from COVID or any other excuses that they may have that are related to COVID. So I thought that was interesting because I'm sure that if we were counting all the people who left the workforce due to COVID, we would have seen a bigger increase in both the number of layoffs and the number of people who are now officially considered to be unemployed. So the economy really is quite a bit weaker than the statistics reveal. And I already went over the jobs report from January and how almost all of the jobs that were created were created by the statisticians, not by employers, because they almost all had to do with an unusually large, in fact, a record-breaking seasonal adjustment that was basically jobs manufactured at the stroke of a pen by the Bureau of Labor Statistics based on their seasonal adjustments that for whatever reason they decided to make. And in fact, one of the points that John Williams was making was that if the Fed is under the false impression that one of the reasons for inflation is that we have this booming economy and that the booming economy provides the cover for the rate hikes in that the economy is so strong that it can withstand some rate hikes, the Fed is completely mistaken and it's going to find out how mistaken it is the minute it tries to raise rates because we don't have an inflation problem because we have a booming economy. A, we don't even have a booming economy. We have a bubble and booming economies don't create inflation. A booming money supply creates inflation. It's the Federal Reserve. It's its own monetary policy that has caused the inflation. And in fact, it's its own monetary policy that has so weakened the economy by causing all these malinvestments and misallocations of resources. So because we have inflation, we have a weak economy. We don't have inflation because we have a strong economy. It's actually the other way around. The Fed has it asked backwards. And if they think they could raise interest rates because we've got this strong economy, they got another thing coming. All they're doing is putting a pin in a bubble. And I don't care how small that pin is, it's a gigantic bubble. And as I said, the bigger the bubble, the smaller the pin is required to pop it. In fact, this bubble is so big, you don't even need a pin. All you have to do is talk about the pin and the air comes out. And that's exactly what's happening. Because as I've explained on this podcast many times, strong economies keep prices down because strong economies result in abundance. When you have a strong economy, you produce more stuff. When you have a greater supply of stuff, prices are lower. Just like I said earlier in the podcast, strong economies produce trade surpluses. Strong economies produce so much stuff that you produce more than you need. And you sell the surplus to the rest of the world and then you make money and then you invest your earnings and you get richer and richer and richer as you accumulate assets. Weak economies 
don't produce enough stuff. They rely on imports and they pay for the imports by going into debt and they become poorer and poorer as they continue to go deeper into debt to import the stuff that the economy is not strong enough to produce. And John Williams was pretty much validating everything that I'm saying about stagflation, about that's where we're headed. And in fact, he was talking about hyperinflation. He thinks it's a pretty much foregone conclusion. I talk about hyperinflation as a worst case scenario. He pretty much thinks hyperinflation is the most likely scenario. I mean, maybe he's right. Maybe I'm not being bearish enough. Maybe this whole situation is even worse than I think. And I think it's pretty bad. But there are more and more people now, even on Wall Street, you'll find it once in a while. You'll read a story. People are starting to get it. A lot of people are afraid to admit it, even if they get it. But every once in a while, you can see this stuff slipping out. People are gradually starting to appreciate the significance of this problem. And I think that's why you're already starting to see this underlying shift. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that we had strength in the stock market and even the NASDAQ and those beaten down overvalued momentum stocks are having a dead cat bounce. Well, the whole time those stocks have been bouncing, the value stocks, the dividend paying stocks, they continue to rise. So those stocks were rising as the momentum stocks we're getting crushed. And now that the momentum stocks are rebounding, those stocks are continuing to rise. This is a powerful wave. It is only now getting started because investors are only now starting to wake up. So this wave has a long way to go. You can ride this thing, I think, for years and years and years. It's going to build momentum as it gains power. As more and more investors wake up to what's going on, it's going to feed on itself and you're going to see these stocks moving up, I think, even faster, especially when you consider the fact that there's a limited supply of cheap stocks. I mean, there's still a bunch of them out there, but on a market cap basis, relative to the massive overvaluations in the momentum space, you're going to have a lot of money trying to get into a small area. And so that's going to have a significant impact on price. Now, of course, a lot of that money that's trapped in these momentum stocks is never going to get out, right? It's going to disappear. It's going to go to money heaven because the market cap isn't going to be withdrawn it's going to evaporate. The stocks are just going to crash. And so the money's just going to vanish, right? A lot of money may have come in, but it ain't coming out. One more thing that I forgot to mention earlier in the podcast, when I was talking about Bitcoin and the fact that the Bitcoin rally was kind of obscuring the more significant rally in gold, not significant in the magnitude, but significant in what it portends, that we have a real bull market emerging in gold. We are decisively in a bear market in Bitcoin. And the recent rally is just a bear market rally, a sucker rally. And while the suckers are paying attention to that rally in fool's gold, They are ignoring the rally in real gold. But another story that everybody seemed to ignore that came out today about Bitcoin, and I thought it was very significant, and a lot of people in the Bitcoin space can dismiss it as being no big deal, but the U.S. government announced that it just seized $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin. This is by far the largest seizure in U.S. history. And of course, like all of these seizures or forfeitures, No court order, right? Completely in violation of the U.S. Constitution, the Fourth Amendment. They just go in and seize property, right, without due process. But the fact of the matter is they were able to seize this money 
from multiple wallets spread across the world. The wallets were owned by a married couple who stole or purportedly stole the Bitcoin from Bitfinex back in 2016. And of course, when they stole the Bitcoin, it wasn't worth anywhere near 3.6 billion. In fact, it was worth less than 100 million. It was still a significant theft. But over the years, the value of the coins they've stolen, at least in the market, have gone way up. I mean, the intrinsic value is still the same, which is zero, but the market price has gone way up because so many people have bought it. But the interesting thing is the government was not only able to track it down, but they were able to seize it out of all these wallets all around the world. 3.6 billion worth without a court order, the government just takes it. Now, everybody wants to talk about how Bitcoin is so secure, how it's so safe, how it's unconfiscatable. The government can't get at your Bitcoin. It's better than gold. Well, here you have an example. The government just got 3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin. How is it unconfiscatable if that much of it was just confiscated? Now, a lot of people are saying, well, they kept their keys in the wrong place. Well, who cares? Obviously, these are sophisticated people. They were smart enough to steal all that Bitcoin. They just weren't smart enough to prevent the government from stealing it back. Because basically, if you take property without a court order, it's theft. I don't care if the government does it. If they're doing it illegally, it's theft. Now, maybe they did steal this money. The government should have gone through the constitutional appropriate way to take it by securing a court order. And if they didn't do that, well, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. But the larger point here is that the government was able to get it. So how seizure proof, how forfeiture resistant was this Bitcoin if it was so easy for the U.S. government to get it? You know, everybody wants to say, oh, gold's no good because the government confiscated gold in 1934. They didn't confiscate it. They simply made it illegal to own and they told people to turn it in, and then they paid you the dollar value of that gold at $20 an ounce. Of course, then they revalued gold and devalued the dollar, and now that gold that you turned in was worth $35 an ounce. Of course, if you didn't turn it in, then you benefited, and the government didn't do anything to you. Even though there were technically penalties, I don't think a single person went to jail for not voluntarily turning in their gold, and a lot of gold wasn't turned in, which is why we still have so many of these old gold coins, because the government melted them all down. Everything that was turned in got melted down. The coins that exist today are the ones that weren't turned in. But the point is, the government required everybody to turn in their gold, but the people who didn't turn in their gold got away with it. If the government can make it illegal to own gold, it's even easier to make it illegal to own Bitcoin, because gold is protected by the Constitution. Gold is legal tender in the Constitution. Bitcoin is not. I mean, you think if they can get away with banning gold, well, they can certainly get away with banning Bitcoin, and they have a precedent. They banned gold before, so they certainly could ban Bitcoin. The difference is they have a much better way of going after the people who don't comply because they can find your Bitcoin, just like they found the Bitcoin of this couple. And then if it's illegal to own Bitcoin and you refuse to turn yours in, well, then you can go to jail. You can get fined. And here's the thing. Let's say the government even decides that it's going to pay you the market value of your Bitcoin when you surrender it, which is what they did with gold. What do you think that Bitcoin is going to be worth after the U.S. government makes it illegal? Bitcoin is going to crash. So even if the government gives you 
dollars for your Bitcoin, you're not going to get very many because the price would have already collapsed before you had a chance to turn them in. But of course, I think the U.S. government may just say, look, you can't own it and we're not giving you anything. I mean, the government doesn't care about just compensation, right? They'll just ban it as contraband and that's it. And this proves, though, how easy it is for the government to not only track the Bitcoin and figure out who owns it, but then to seize it from the rightful owners or the wrongful owners. But if they can seize Bitcoin from criminals, they can seize it from anybody. They can seize it from honest people. They can seize it from political criminals. They can seize it from domestic terrorists. And by the way, right now, domestic terrorists are defined as anybody that disagrees with the government. If you express an opinion that is in opposition to something that the government wants to do, even if what the government wants to do is illegal and bad, well, now you're a domestic terrorist. And now I guess that gives the government the right to seize your Bitcoin and they can obviously do it. But what they can't seize is your gold because they don't know you have it. You can't keep your gold in the cloud. It's not on a blockchain. If you have physical gold, the government has no idea that you own it. And even if they know that you own it, they have no way to take it.